Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on the podcast we like to call Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley. Now, before we get to Fred, I, I have to answer a criticism that came through uh, that I was disrespecting Fred by not giving his proper title. So let me introduce Dr. Fred Watson, astronomer at large with the Department of Industry, Energy and Science. Hi, Fred. Um, <laughs> that's nearly me. Um, it's uh, you're very close with the department and that's very good. It's, it's, hard, indus- it's hard to keep it- up because they keep changing their names. <laughs> Industry, Innovation and Science. Oh, that wasn't on your, uh, that's not on your email signature. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to have a look <laughs> right now. <laughs> and no, if, you re- if you really want to be pedantic, yeah. uh, as your listener clearly does, and that's good, pedant, pedantry is good, it's actually Professor Watson. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. You've never told me. You probably have. Oh, you know what I'm like. Yeah. But, uh, but you... All is well, Fred. So, see, I'm a, I'm a plastic professor, which means um, what I've got are adjunct professorships. Um, but I, the nice thing is I've got them in six universities. So yeah. nearly everywhere I go, they welcome me, which is very, very nice. Indeed. Um, yeah, it's now, very nice. They don't um, throw me out. It, I know people think that I haven't been away for the last couple of weeks, but I have. My wife and I went to Hong Kong and China and Macau uh, for a little holiday. Uh, so we, we crammed sessions before I left. So um, now we're up to date and we're, we're back uh, ready to go. But um, one thing that disappointed me about my trip to Hong Kong, I didn't get to go to the Hong Kong Space Museum. I had it slated, but then when I was ready to go, it wasn't open till 1 p.m. and we had to get out to the airport by 3. So I missed that. I was well, all ready shocking. to report on it. <laughs> but I did eat deep fried intestine. Yes, well, look, um, you know, it, it's from one extreme to the other, really, isn't it? Yes. I don't know which is worse, missing the space centre or eating deep-fried intestine. Oh, you I know. can tell you what was worse. <laughs> yeah, it was like eating a giant rubber band. That's all I can say. The, the one thing I didn't eat, although I did see it in a market in China, was um, a cage full of live snakes. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, they would probably have been fairly tough as well. Yeah, it probably tastes like chicken. Mm. Now, today, we better get down to business. We're going to talk about uh, the demise of Opportunity on Mars that uh, uh, NASA has uh, finally announced. Uh, we thought about it for a while, but they, they kept trying to get it back, but uh, no. Uh, and Ultima uh, Tool A, it's been called the Space Snowman. Uh, now it turns out that's wrong. Uh, They've done a harpoon test to try and pick up some space junk. Elon Musk is changing the design of his his rocket to send people to Mars. 
and we've had a question about whether or not dark matter actually exists so we'll uh, we'll get into that uh, but first Fred opportunity is no more yes RIP opportunity this um, is a lost opportunity <laughs> oh we're back aren't we we're back <laughs> Uh, it is uh, actually it's it's not lost. NASA knows exactly where it is, but it ain't doing anything. And that's because we think anyway that the dust storm which enveloped a lot of Mars uh, during the northern hemisphere summer of last year, uh, in other words, the, the middle of the year, uh, that dust storm uh, almost certainly covered the solar panels of opportunity to the extent that the amount of sunlight that they were receiving was diminished below what could acceptably use, be used to charge the batteries because that's the key thing with the solar panels and once the batteries go flat then you've got no power just to keep the electronics warm and the martian night drops in temperature well below minus 60 celsius uh that's probably about minus 30 or thereabouts minus 40 no sorry mine it must be of the order of minus 50 or thereabouts yeah Fahrenheit. No, it must be minus 70 Fahrenheit. I can't do these calculations in my head anymore. I'm out of practice. Uh, anyway, it's it's cold. Uh, yes. And so that, that, that freezes the electronics. Uh, and uh, once that happens, things tend not to come back to life. So the last signal that was received from Opportunity, if I remember rightly, was on June the 10th last year. And the mission controllers have kept on sending little bursts of, of, um, of, of signal to the spacecraft to try and wake it up, including, I think, um, I can't remember what it was, but there was some, some rock music was sent out there as well, just in case it, you know, it needed some entertainment, uh, none of which actually produced any results. So uh, with much regret, because Opportunity has come to be regarded as one of the great space missions of all time, uh, with much regret, the mission has been brought to an end. Remember, it was in uh, January 2004, mm. uh, that's 15 years ago, more than 15 years ago, when it touched down on the surface of Mars with a kind of expect life expectancy of 90 days so it's done 60 times better than that which is and remarkable yeah. it is extraordinary the statistics it's covered 45 kilometers about 22 miles or thereabouts uh it's uh sorry it's more like 28 miles sorry i'm doing my calculations wrong again uh it's um it's also holds the record it is an interesting one it holds the record for traversing the most uh, the steepest inclination of any space vehicle at 32 degrees it went up a slope 32 degrees which is um if you were in a car going up something like that you'd be terrified i, I think uh you might be able to correct me i don't know but i think the victoria peak tram comes down the, oh, yeah. the mountain yeah. at about 32 degrees yeah the, that's right in hong kong yeah yes. <laughs> and I, I went on that it is mighty steep that is yeah. a real that is a real achievement yeah well this this didn't have uh, you know it didn't have the rack work holding it on or anything it just had its poor old wheels uh, so an extraordinary achievement yeah and um, a, a space mission to be celebrated yes indeed uh, and um, well it had to happen one day so um, you know uh, it, it's finally over, but it did a lot more than they ever anticipated. And uh, you can't say that about all space missions, but this one was extraordinary. Uh, we also wanted to talk about uh, another thing that seems to have not been what we thought it was, and that was Ultima Thule. Now, this is the uh, asteroid that was um, uh, 
passed over by the New Horizons spacecraft on January the 1st. And it's since been sort of designated the space snowman because that's what it looks like. But no, it is not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The flyby on January the 1st, we got images back fairly quickly uh, showing this thing that looked like two balls stuck together, um, uh, very much the snowman shape. And I think actually you and I spoke about it again because a detailed image was released at the end of January mm. uh, showing um, craters and you know various features that were starting to be interpreted by the New Horizons team. But then uh, about a week or so ago, and we're now uh, sort of mid to late February, um, the new imagery was released, which shows that it is not what it seemed to be. Um, so there are images now showing the object, Ultima Thule, it's this Kuiper Belt object, 6.5 billion kilometres from, from Earth, about 4 billion miles. Uh, and it uh, is quite clear from this sort of flyby imagery as the spacecraft is looking back on Ultima Thule, having gone past it, and seeing the dark, the unilluminated side, with a, just a little sliver of light around the edge, uh, it's quite obvious that this is not uh, uh, two blobs, two spherical blobs stuck together. It's two pancakes stuck together. Yeah. Uh, it is very different in shape from what we expected and um, really resembles, uh, well, exactly that. They're not quite pancakes. They're, they're more like two pebbles that are, that are stuck together, sort of in parallel. So when you look at them, from what is currently the, the side um, being illuminated by the sun, they just look like two spherical balls. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. We've been hoodwinked by a major optical illusion there, I think. Now, that prompts the question as to whether or not this is a common thing or if we've actually just stumbled across something out of the ordinary. I think it's the latter, from my understanding of what the planetary science pundits are saying, that, yes, we understand how spherical things form, and, in fact, uh, spheres are what you get when when an object grows big enough that its gravity overcomes the, the internal resistance. So, you know, that's why planets are spherical, because they, 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 gravity pulls them into a spherical shape. And that's why, uh, with our perhaps naive view, we expected that this curious object, uh, which was presented to us, uh, fully illuminated by the sun, of course, because the spacecraft approached it from the inner solar system, which mm. is where the sun is. So what we saw was was the full, full Ultima Thule in the same way as we see a full moon illuminated by the sun. And it looked for all the world like two spherical globes stuck together. Uh, and it's only when we've seen these images of the backside. And uh, you might say, well, how, how do you know it's that pancake shape when the thing's not illuminated on that side? And the answer is, it's not illuminated, but it blocks off the stars behind it. And so that tells you what shape it is. There's a, uh, it's fairly easy to find on the web. There's a little movie sequence showing Ultima Thule whizzing through past the stars. And you can see just by looking at it that this is two flat things stuck together. Together. Yeah, yeah, and um, um, and that thinness is what was apparent with the um, with the stars behind, and um, yeah, if it was spherical, there would have been a circular um, yeah, exactly blockage. That's right. Mm. So, um, but your point is well made that this is probably we think this is something fairly unusual, and indeed, it's something that. The theorists, the people who build models for how these things work, are really going back to the drawing board with. They're really having to think hard. How you get something like this, two shapes, uh, both flattened, that kind of stick together, 
um, more or less in parallel uh, with their, and the other thing that's interesting is their rotational axis goes right through the through the join. Um, so when you look at it from the sunlit side, it appears to be rotating sort of like a clock face. Uh, it's it, it's not you know it's it's spinning uh, with an axis that's right along the line of sight, uh, oh. as we saw when it approached. Very interesting stuff. So asking you how it happened would be pointless because no one seems to know at the moment. But uh, maybe it, oh. maybe it got smashed into from both sides simultaneously. I don't know. It's it, it's hard I think to figure people, out. Yeah. So I think the one thing that is coming out of this now uh, is that. This is probably something that happened very early in the history of the solar system. So um, the, the, the pundits are su suspecting that it's been like this for the last four and a half billion years. Wow. Well, we just need to turn new horizons around and go back and have another look. <laughs> yeah, that's quite tricky, actually. Yeah, can't do it. Okay. <laughs> I tried putting the brakes on at 14 kilometres per second. It didn't do you much good. No, not really. You'd burn them out pretty quickly. Yep. Uh, okay, so um, some, uh, it seems that every week or two there's something new to learn about Ultima Tool A, so uh, watch this space. I think there'll be more, too. Mm. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we're uh, going to revisit something we've discussed before, and this is the problem of space junk. There's so much garbage out there that we've put into space that it's it's reaching a, a point where they're starting to worry about, you know, the assets orbiting Earth that are working, uh, communication satellites, for instance. So they've been trying to figure out ways to. Uh, 
clean up the mess. And one of the ways that was being touted was um, using harpoons. Well, the good news is they've done a test. <laughs> yeah, this is all about um, the spacecraft that you and I have spoken about several times before, I think, um, which has the slightly self-explanatory name of Remove Debris. Yeah, that's just, that? I mean, they took several months with massive committees to, to come down to that. <laughs> I mean, that can only have been figured out by a committee. Uh, yes, that's probably true. It's probably a terribly eminent committee as well. So probably. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Remove Debris, uh, a product of uh, a group in the UK uh, led by the University of Surrey, um, and its mission was to test out different technologies for attempting to clear the uh, Earth's environment of all the debris that's hanging around up there. So remove debris is a good name for it. Um, I, should, it's, I would have thought, you know, eliminate a one or something like that. <laughs> give it a give it a ballsy name. Give it something. Uh, to, clean up 53. How's yeah, that? That's, that's um, nearly as the, bad for it. That it is, yeah. So this thing was launched uh, from the International Space Station, actually. It went up on one of the transit um, um, sp spacecraft. Uh, was launched from the International Space Station, if I remember rightly, it was around about this time last year. Um, don't quote me on that. And uh, one of the tests that was done was to use a net to, uh, to, to grab onto bits of passing space junk. Uh, and because the net is self-closing and is also uh, attached by a tether, uh, you can then use that to deorbit the piece of space junk. So the, the, real, um, the real step that has to be taken with this stuff, and by the way, there are somewhere between 7,500 and 8,000 tonnes of debris uh, up in space, ranging from the tiniest little pieces to huge rocket bodies that are spent. Mm. Um, so uh, the, the, the main aim is to take that bit of space junk and slow it down because slowing it down brings it down nearer to the upper layers of the Earth's atmosphere, which slow it down further and it um, undergoes this fairly catastrophic uh, dive into the atmosphere, which um, almost always results in it bur burning up, uh, basically evaporating in the atmosphere. Uh, once in a while, if there's a large object, you can get some debris uh, which makes it down to the ground. Uh, nobody's ever been hit by any of this stuff yet, uh, but uh, it's always a possibility. But it's actually quite rare. And in fact, um, for the larger bits, the bits that are uh, harmful, they are tracked by radar. So people kind of have a fairly good idea where they're going to come down. You might remember Tiangong-1, the, the big Chinese uh, space station, which came down last year. And uh, towards the end of its descent, even though it was out of control, people had a pretty good idea where it was going to land. And actually, it landed right where you would have put it if you'd had any control over it. Oh, wow. A, a region in the South Pacific Ocean. Same, same with Skylab. It, yes, that's right. Skylab, bits of Skylab. In the Ocean. Yeah, bits of it came down uh, in Western Australia as well. Yeah, but, but Western Australia, yeah, 
<laughs> careful, careful. There's a big radio telescope there. That's no, very what, close what I was to going to up. say is it's it's very remote country. So if you <laughs> if you got hit by something in Western Australia, it's very sparse. You'd be you'd be the most unlucky person in the world, I reckon. You would actually. That's right. And of course, it's that sparseness that makes uh, makes it a good place to do radio astronomy from. Yes, giving a plug there for the square kilometre array. Mm. Uh, the uh, so that that that's that's right. So the aim is to is to slow things down. Um, and so if you can attach uh, a, some sort of, you know, almost like a parachute, a kind of membrane to a spacecraft, what it does is it increases its uh, its cross-section, which means that the thin atmosphere that there is up there has a much greater effect in slowing down the spacecraft. So the two ways that have been tested uh, with uh, with the with the removed debris spacecraft at the moment, first of all the net, but now the more recent one, which is the harpoon. Uh, so it's this is great stuff. You fire a harpoon at your target satellite, and it's got barbs on the end, spring-loaded barbs that uh, because there's there's enough weight in the harpoon to penetrate the titanium or aluminium shell or whatever it is of this spacecraft, the barbs open up and then you've got a really good hold of it. And if the other end of the harpoon cable is attached to something like a, a membrane or a parachute, then that is going to have the desired effect in slowing it down. And that was the, the purpose of the test, to show whether you can actually harpoon something up in space without basically destroying your own orbit by the, you know, by the, uh, the, the, the recoil. Uh, the, the trial seems to have gone flawlessly. Uh, all the reports I've read uh, are glowing about the performance of the harpoon. So maybe that's a technology that uh, would be worth, uh, worth developing. Oh, much cooler too. It's cool, really. Cooler yeah. than a head, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But I, I just think it's really interesting that they're using fishing methods to... <laughs> Well, that's right. It's the same problem. Yeah. You know, it is the same problem. I have to say, I'd much rather see harpoons used on spacecraft than on whales. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, it's 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 very good use of all technology. Uh, there is one final experiment to be done by removed debris, uh, which will be done probably within the next couple of months, uh, and that is to deploy. A, a device exactly like I've been talking about, a, a parachute or a, a kind of membrane, a, a solar sail uh, that will actually bring removed debris itself back down to Earth. So they're going to try try out the, the ultimate method of deorbiting it on the spacecraft that's doing the tests. Which well, that answered my question because I was going to say, is removed debris ultimately going to become debris? <laughs> well, it already is. But, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it's not. It's still got useful experiments to do. But that's right. If that, if that step hadn't been taken, then it would become space junk itself. But oh. it's, uh, it's not going to be done like that. So its height is roughly 400 kilometres. Um, that's well above the um, the last. Uh, well, it's, well, how can I put it? It's, a, it's above most of the Earth's atmosphere. You know, you, you're well, well above most of it. But there is still enough up there in terms of uh, the um, really rather thin uh, layer of air that exists at that height to act as a break on the on these deorbiting objects. Okay, good one. Well done. Um, except for the name. But well done. Yeah, good job. Uh, now let's move along to uh, a man that just keeps making headlines in the world of astronomy and space, and that's Elon Musk, who has announced some design changes for his rocket booster, which he's planning to send to Mars with 100 people on board. 
Now, I, I, there was another plan to send people to colonise Mars, which only this week has been announced as a no-go. Yep. Um, we won't say that about uh, uh, Elon Musk, but uh, what's he doing to his spaceship? Yeah, this is, uh, once again, something we've talked about before. Um, it's not very long ago that he renamed this spaceship because it was the BFR, if you remember. Yes, yes, uh, which, which, um, which was all kind of... It uh, does indeed, but it was the the big Falcon rocket because his his rocket <laughs> Sorry, series what did you is, say? is the is the Falcons. Listen carefully, okay. the big Falcon rocket. Right, um, I'm sure uh, that's what yeah. you said. It's it's uh, so his series of rockets are called the Falcon, uh, and uh, he renamed it the Starship, which is really rather an elegant name. He's However, about that well, same committee that. Came up with the. Um... You know, somehow I doubt it was a committee. Uh, I think that could have been an executive decision there. Uh, what's more of an executive, uh, executive, God, I can't say it, executive decision, is to propose a novel method of heat shielding the spacecraft when it makes its touchdown on Mars. Because the idea behind this is that it will take 100 tonnes of cargo and 100 passengers uh, to Mars at a time. Um, it is monumentally um, ambitious. I will not share my personal views of taking people hundreds at a time to Mars. Uh, it remains to see how it goes. But uh, his his new idea for um, for preventing the spacecraft burning up in the Martian atmosphere, because that is what happens if you simply descend through the Martian atmosphere at orbital speed. Mm. Um, whereas the space shuttle used thousands of ceramic tiles to, to dissipate the heat, uh, Elon is proposing a method that actually was, was suggested back in the 1960s, uh, and that is to cool the outside of the rocket, of the spacecraft, with liquid, and in fact, what you would use probably is rocket fuel. Um, uh, there was a suggestion, I think, patented in 1965, um, uh, and uh, put, a, put a little warning here. There's a there's a there's a warning for a definitely politically incorrect comment. But they were going to use cooling spacecraft by astronaut pee. Oh. So they would use, um, you know, stored urine and put that around the, uh, basically bleed it out through holes in the spacecraft uh, to cool the spacecraft. That was patented in 1965. Uh, Elon has taken that idea and cleaned it up a bit uh, and turned it into something which may well work. Apparently, if you, if you do that, this liquid, of course, it vaporizes because of the heat, but forms a boundary between the plasma that that is generated by the, the the friction of the spacecraft on the air and the body of the spacecraft itself, which is also made very highly reflective. So, but, but who who gets out and pours it on the front of the ship? So it's got uh, tiny holes all the way around it, and it bleeds this stuff out. It's almost like sweat glands. Um, ah. So. It, you don't have to have somebody pouring it on. It just comes out on its own. Now, um, riding into Mars on a spacecraft with little holes in it everywhere through which liquid is going to seep seems to me to be not that great an idea. But the engineers are looking at it and saying, well, it's 100 times more difficult than the landing Curiosity on Mars was, but it's got a chance of working. And you can bet your boots it'll be tested to death. Uh, so it's a really interesting thought. Yeah, I can't get past the idea of pouring fuel on a fire. Well, that's, that's right. That's what it yes. sounds like. 
Yeah, well, indeed, that's right. Um, I, I, I think um, this stuff will probably burn, but uh, its cooling effect will have been enough to, to, to stop the spacecraft melting. That's the theory. Mm, okay. Interesting idea. Very interesting that's, idea. That's All right, well, watch with interest. I'm sure there'll be more on that. Um, it's Elon Musk. We'll, we'll definitely have more on Elon, on Elon Musk at some stage because uh, he's always uh, he's always finding something interesting to to consider, uh, and often he follows through on what he says he's going to do too. Just ask the people of um, South Australia, who've got a nice battery, the biggest battery in the world, in fact. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, Fred, to a listener question, and we, we had quite a few turn up over the last couple of weeks, and we were all set to sort of tackle one or two of those, and we will get back to them, assuming you didn't delete the email. But um, one turned up today, which sort of got us thinking. It comes from John Brooks. Hi, John. Thanks for the, the question. Uh, and this is this is uh, an interesting spin on something we've talked about many times. And uh, he does, it is rather thought provoking. I'd like to leave a comment slash question. Uh, scientists, theorists and the like continually write articles about dark matter as if it's scientific fact, whereas it's just a theory. I'd like to see you report on the ever-increasing experiments from all over the globe that have failed to show the existence of dark matter and the list gets longer every month and then the same theorists and scientists come up with new excuses and theories to explain their null results. I find it hard to believe that we can look at a galaxy and or a universe and estimate its total mass of every single particle or atom uh, in said galaxy and universe. It's fake science to say we can measure the weight of our own galaxy or others when we don't even understand basics like gravity. Just saying. I'd like to know your thoughts. <laughs> well, thanks, John. And um, the first thing to say is it, it's not really fake science. This is science, and it's how science works. Um, we, what we do is we look at every piece of evidence um, that points to any given phenomenon and try and make sense of it. Uh, and so the evidence that has come about to suggest that there is dark matter uh, in the universe. Principally, as, as you've said, it comes from the way galaxies rotate, the way galaxies behave in clusters, uh, the, the way, actually, the way galaxies uh, bend the light of more distant galaxies in this um, phenomenon we call gravitational lensing. And all of those point really strongly to there being something which is not detectable uh, but which has mass. And so you're, you're basically, you know, you're, you're confronted with uh, immediately with a conundrum. There's a puzzle. And the puzzle is that we know that things behave as though there's something very massive there, which became known as dark matter. But uh, we've failed to de detect it directly. So when dark matter became a real problem for astrophysicists, which was actually in the late 1970s, thanks to the work of a scientist called Vera Rubin, sadly no longer with us, but a great, a great female scientist. She was the person who really alerted people to the fact that there was something wrong with our understanding of the universe. Uh, and that um, actually, it, it, had been, it had been noticed years before. It was back in 1933 that the first evidence came about, but nobody took any notice of it until Vera 
uh, actually pointed it out. And then people really got hold of the idea that there is something missing in our understanding of the way galaxies work. So the first thing that happened, uh, almost the first thing, not quite, it was in the early 1980s, is um, a scientist by the name of Mordechai Milgram in Israel, can't remember which university is that, might be Tel Aviv, can't remember. Uh, he said, well, you know, uh, there must be another way to explain this, uh, these are these weird effects that we see, galaxies rotating too fast to stay together and clusters of galaxies um, uh, the, um, circulating too quickly to stay together. Uh, so he proposed uh, that our understanding of Newton's um, dynamics is wrong. In fact, what he proposed was something called MOND, and MOND stands for Modified Newtonian Dynamics, which suggests that when you have very, very small accelerations, and by an acceleration you can kind of read it as gravity because the two are interchangeable. Uh, in other words, you know, feeling the gravitational force of a, um, a planet at a very great distance rather than uh, rather than um, in, in, in the immediate environment of the sun, uh, or more especially the, the, the gravitational effect of one star on another. Perhaps gravity does not work the way we think it does at those very, very low levels of acceleration. And uh, so Mond was proposed, he wrote papers on it, uh, it was analysed to death um, and found really not to not to do the job. Yes, it got rid of the need to have dark matter, but it gave you all kinds of other problems. Uh, it meant that you know our understanding of the way the universe has expanded all went completely cockeyed, and that flies in the face of other observations which themselves are really secure about the way the universe has evolved. Um, it also meant that, uh, you know, some of the things that we take for granted within the solar system wouldn't have worked either. So it's not now generally accepted as being an explanation for dark matter. And uh, it has to be said that most scientists do believe that there is a subatomic particle species that we're missing because it is not detectable. Now, um, John's right in that there have been experiments which uh, have been designed to, to look for the possibility of uh, a dark matter particle interacting with a normal matter particle. And that's the problem. We know from all the evidence that these interactions are incredibly rare. So there are, there are experiments which are kind of hoping to find uh, an interaction from time to time. We've got a precedent for this because we know that there are particles called neutrinos, mm. which themselves barely interact with normal matter. I can't remember the exact figure, but it is something like um, if you, you know, f fire a bunch of neutrinos through half a light year of lead, Half of them get through. It's that kind of statistic um, because they they themselves really don't interact. Mm. Uh, yet we can detect them. Rarely there are there are there are neutrinos detectors which pick up, you know, one in a gazillion of these things. And the theorist suggests that um, in, uh, dark matter should be should be similar. There should be uh, it's probably at a, a, an even rarer level, but there should be interactions. We look for evidence of that both in the laboratory and in space. There is the uh, the likelihood that when 
dark matter particles collide with each other, they annihilate, a bit like matter and antimatter. And that would produce a very specific signature in the gamma radiation region of the spectrum, which people are looking for and have not yet unequivocally found. Mm. So the experiments are really all about, um, in a sense, they're they're backing up what John says. They're trying to disprove dark matter. But uh, we've got no other explanation at the moment for the way galaxies behave. And so uh, that uh, conflict will continue until there is positive evidence of some dark matter particle. It, I... The likelihood is that it will be something that turns up Probably not now at the Large Hadron Collider because that seems to have exhausted its current energy levels. The Larger Hadron Collider? No, there's something called the FCC, which is not what you think it is. It's the Future Circular Collider. And That's whereas the, yeah, the Large Hadron Collider has a diameter of, uh, of uh, about eight kilometres, this one has a diameter of 100 kilometres, I think. Yeah. So it's the plan. Uh, actually, no, it's, it's not. It's, uh, the, the path length is 100 kilometres. So 27 kilometres for the, the Large Hadron Collider, 100 kilometres for the, for the FCC. Um, that, 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 just to perhaps uh, wrap this up, it, it, dark matter is only one thing that doesn't make sense in physics. There are a few other things about what we call the standard model, which is this model of 17 particles that make up everything we know. There are some aspects of that which are very esoteric that themselves don't make sense. So scientists are very much of the opinion that there is new physics out there. There are new physical processes whose nature is currently not understood. And that's why science is so exciting, because people are looking for those. Um, and and the experiments that fail to find anything are part and parcel of all that. They're not fake science. They're the way science works. I just hope that um, we do find out what that dark matter particle is. Uh, the odds are it's something called uh, an axion or maybe something called a neutralino. These are two suspected theoretical particles, but we haven't got there yet. Uh, and I, 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 hope that, um, I hope that I will be around still when we do. And more especially, I hope you'll be around as well, Andrew, so I, we can talk well, about it on Space Nuts. That's the plan. That is <laughs> plan, the plan. Yeah. But I suppose I can um, bring it down to my level by drawing a comparison. We, we, not many people that I know of deny the existence of black holes, and yet we've never seen one. But mm. we know from the behaviour and the mathematics that they exist. Uh, we're on the verge of seeing one. Yeah, and I right. would put dark matter in the same category. We can yeah. tell by the way things are interacting and moving that there's something out there. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a matter of time. And look, if, if it turned out that the weight of evidence shifted towards it being something like MOND, the Modified Newtonian Dynamics, it won't be that because that's ruled out by other aspects. But if it, uh, you know, if scientists quietly started realizing they were barking up the wrong tree, then they would change it. Uh, as I said, that's the way science works. That's exactly what happened with Pluto. Mm. Uh, scientists over 20 years realized that Pluto simply did not have the attributes which you would Con, you know, you'd consider uh, as being what a planet should be, and so it never was a planet. Uh, and but they and so they adopted the view that yes, Pluto is something different. It's a dwarf planet. That's it's a perfectly respectable dwarf planet, uh, and it now has it's known to have those uh, those criteria. Funny you should min mention Pluto because uh, in my book I actually do focus on the decision to um, take 
pl planet status away from Pluto. It comes up in the story with the main character and a Dr. Fred Wilson. Interestingly <laughs> enough. Who could he be? I on? don't know. Very astute <laughs> fellow indeed. Uh, but I would like to thank John for his, uh, his uh, insightful question. It's certainly... Um, probably the, the subject of astronomy at the moment that's getting uh, a lot of tongues wagging. Yep. Um, and so thank you, uh, John, and, and we'll get to some of the other questions that uh, turned up in the last few weeks uh, in future episodes. Thank you, as always, Fred. It's a great pleasure. I'm off to my book launch tonight. We're going to do of course you are. Launch. That's right, yes. Yeah, I, got a, I got a specially made Shanghai to launch it, and uh, she'll be... <laughs> Up and running. But I would like to say thank you to the people who have come back to me with their reviews because I did ask for feedback. And yep. so far, nobody's picked the twist. I'm so I'm so pleased about that. But um, uh, all positive comments. People have really enjoyed the story, especially the way it keeps twisting and changing. It just um, catches them off guard. They think they know what's going to happen and then it changes. So I'm really, really happy that that's happening. It, um, it seems people have got joy out of it. Thank you, Fred, as always, and we will talk to you again next time. Yeah, I hope the book launch goes really well, Andrew, and I look forward to hearing about it next time we speak. Fred Watson, astronomer at large from that strange Australian federal government department, and we will catch him next week, and I will catch you next week here on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.